Good evening and welcome to the second of two programmes on the politics of land in post-independence Ireland. Tonight, we focus on the work of the Land Commission, an institution that had been around for four decades by the time of Irish independence, but was reconstituted by the Free State Government a century ago this year. We also look at the long-running controversy over the Commission archives. Why, four decades after it finished its work and 24 years after it was finally dissolved, can scholars and the general public still not get access to its unique records? The Land Commission archive is the last really big piece of the jigsaw for the late 19th, early 20th century. We've got a lot of the records opened up now dealing with the so-called revolutionary period. But while that was happening very noisily, in the background, quietly, the Land Commission was transferring 75% of the land of Ireland from landlord to tenant starting in the 1880s and moving through various land acts uh, up to 1922. A hundred years ago this year, the newly constituted Land Commission, originally established under the terms of Gladstone's 1881 Land Act, was assigned a difficult task. It was expected to deal with unfinished agrarian business left over from the days of empire. That included around two million acres of land in the new Irish Free State that remained in the hands of landlords. This had not yet been distributed under the terms of the breakthrough land purchase legislation of the early 1900s. Dr. Terence Dooley is Professor of History at Maynooth University and in his book, The Land for the People, he studied the agrarian policies of the first governments of the Irish Free State. He's been telling me about the origins of the Land Commission and the poisoned chalice it was handed in 1923. In reaction to the land war of 1879 to 81, the British government introduced a land act in 1881. And this was ostensibly to deal with the introduction of the three Fs, fair rent, free sales and fixity of tenure. That had been the burning issue in Irish uh, land and politics from the, the famine era and before. In order to address fair rents, they established the Irish Land Commission. And the idea of the Land Commission was to adjudicate on rents between landlords and tenants and to introduce a fair rent system. But given the political climate, of course, of the time, fair rents invariably came to mean lower rents. So the Land Commission, um, in its early years, reduced rents by, on average, about 21% or so. But it is as a rent-fixing body that it is established in 1881. What happened to the Land Commission then in 1923 when the Free State Government has taken over, introduces its own land legislation? I mean, the Land Commission at that stage has achieved so much, but yet there is still so much to actually do. So when the government contemplates the introduction of the 1923 Land Act, it also means, of course, it has to continue the body that is known as the Land Commission in order to do so. So just very shortly before the introduction of the 1923 Land Act, the Land Commission is reconstituted. It continues its role post-1923 very much in the same way as it has done before independence, except that uh, it's no longer responsible for the Congested Districts Board, which has been now done away with. What tasks was the Commission then given by the first Free State Government in the 1923 Land Act? First of all, it has to complete the transfer of land ownership, 
from landlords to tenant farmers. And there are about 114,000, 115,000 farms that have yet to be transferred. So that's one of its first jobs. Secondly, is to begin the process of acquisition and redistribution of lands in order to make uneconomic farms more viable. Essentially taking over tracts of untended land and dividing them between smallholders. So how then does the Land Commission operate from the 1920s onwards? Take it that by the 1930s, at the height of its work in terms of acquisition and redistribution, the Land Commission employed about 1,350 people or so. That makes it the largest state agency operating certainly out of rural Ireland. And it's divided up into a variety of different branches. And each branch is responsible for a certain part of the work of the Land Commission. So its main job, by certainly by the 1930s, is acquisition and redistribution. Now, the Minister for Agriculture, or previously the Minister for Lands, is responsible for the Land Commission. They are not supposed to have any political input to redistribution schemes. The extent to which that was the case remains to be seen. But certainly at local level, I mean, consider it is the work of the Land Commission to send in an inspector into an area. The inspector who is responsible for the redistribution scheme consults or talks with the major players in the area. Very often he's presented with a redistribution scheme anyway. But more often the case is what they will do is they will interview all potential applicants living within a mile radius of an estate to be redistributed. They will then draw up a redistribution scheme. And the redistribution scheme is based on a variety of factors. The working of the land or the farm that the um, potential applicant already has, number of family, in number of children, family, whether in fact they are married in the first place, and, and a variety of other different factors. And then they will decide on the final scheme of redistribution. How much political shenanigans went on then subsequently, I think is a big job of research for somebody into the future. Now, there's some anecdotal evidence, and I use it in in, in my book, The Land for the People, told to me by a lady called Nellie O'Cleary, who was working with the Land Commission at the time, and Sean Mylan, who was the Minister for Lands at the time, former IRA leader in County Cork, uh, storms out of his office one morning and slaps a land redistribution scheme on the office and shouts out, basically, who gave land to that whore? Which suggests that, I mean, the application or the, or the redistribution scheme had been put in front of him and he wasn't obviously pleased about it. Now, I have talked to uh, people who have worked in the Land Commission, you know, who have told me that they worked as best they could to be as fair as they possibly could in the job that they were doing. If you look at dull debates, if you look at the rhetoric... What you have are politicians all the time asking questions, hundreds of questions every year, about when certain estates are going to be acquired and redistributed. Now, are they interfering, therefore, in that way? Or, as one former member of the Land Commission said to me, it was very easy for them afterwards to write to all the successful applicants and say to them, I'm delighted that you got your 
extra 10 acres or whatever, thereby giving the impression that there was strong political interference. The extent of that political interference, how we separate the rhetoric from the reality, is something that obviously we'll only ever be able to do when the Land Commission records are open to the public. How did the work of the Land Commission then come to an end? First of all, I would say Ireland's entry into the European Union in 1973 changes a great deal about the way Ireland and the governments and so on taught about land. But secondly, I mean, it had come to the natural end of its work, um, so that by the 1980s, all the land that had been there to be acquired and redistributed uh, had been acquired and redistributed. So it had come to the natural end of its working cycle. Thousands of Irish families would have had dealings with the Land Commission over a period of more than a century. One such family was the Gagans, two brothers, James and Patrick Gagan, of County Leitrim, who in the early 1900s paid £3,600 for a farm on the McCreevy estate in Leitrim owned by the Latouche banking family. Their descendants granddaughter and grandniece, Dr Anne Murphy, Emeritus Research Fellow of the Technological University in Dublin, has documented the relationship between the Gagans and the Land Commission in a unique family archive. They got an advance of money from the Land Commission. It wasn't compulsory purchase, it was a mortgage, if you like. They were in possession of it for so long as the monarchy and all the, the followers were on the document. But then it changed once the state changed and independence arrived, all those land ownership registrations were had to be adjusted. In 1922, their land became registered by the Land Commission under the fiat of the Land Commission, not under His Majesty or mm. Her Majesty before that. So then they became the mortgage holders of the loan from the uh, Land and Commission. And this is a reconstituted Land Commission. Yes. This is the Irish Free State this is Land the, Commission, which has it, taken over the functions it is actually of the nine, Gladstone yeah. Land Commission. So the Land Act was 1923, the Land Commission Act, but they actually had... The, the imprimatur to go ahead with it in 1922. So it was in that transition. And it must have been a very scary time suddenly having all these land registry arrangements changed from the monarchy to the state. So they paid something like uh, £30 twice a year and it, it didn't change very much. Now, they, some documents give the land, uh, the rent price or the repayment price at 62 per year. Others in 1933 show it at 89, over 89 pounds per year. But that's quite a lot of money in Leitrim. The other downside of that was that the rateable valuation of agricultural land was struck by the local authority based on how much the costs were to run the county. And I looked just recently at the population decline from 1901 to 1971. The population of Leitrim declined by 49.3%, which meant there were fewer and fewer mm. ratepayers available. So the burden is So greater. the existing ratepayers. So, in fact, the biggest burden on all these Land Commission people wasn't so much the land annuities, which stayed reasonably steady, was the variable rates imposed by the county council. You've brought the, the mm. correspondence. It's fascinating. Mm. I've looked at, at, at some of it and there are some very interesting documents, some very beautiful mm. documents as well. But yeah. how much of what you have mm. involves 
communication, correspondence with the Land Commission of the yeah. Irish Free State. Yes, quite a bit of it. Once they set out the the payment, you have a record, you have a, an almost cardboard A4, it wasn't quite an A4 size, and you brought that to the bank for your annual payment twice yearly. And you brought it into the Monster Bank or whichever was the nominated bank and they stamped it with an actual stamp on one side and a, an ink stamp on the other. So, in fact, I think we may be missing one of those sheets, but we have an entire run of all the annuities being paid on time and stamped on the card. And the annuities continued to be paid yeah, after independence. Absolutely. Then you have the economic war. Yes. You have in 1938 an agreement mm. between the Irish government and the British mm. government. The Irish government pays yeah. the annuities but still continues Keeps to collect, collect them. them. They did. <laughs> and I suppose that was a, a, a terrible bone of contention but you see it wasn't their biggest complaint because during that time the, the rates that had to be paid was a bigger burden and the compulsory tillage and we have documentation about that too. Which Explain that absurd. to me. Tell me about the compulsory so tillage. So compulsory tillage this is during the war years and when there was a shortage of, of meal or grain coming into the country for because of the war and the disruption and the economic war with England there wasn't enough uh, native grown wheat and barley to make flour and feed animals and people and whatever. So the Department of Lands imposed a percent quota on every farm that so much of it had to be in wheat and so much had to be in oats, regardless of the quality of the land. So if I live in Kildare and I can grow uh, barley that's the most productive in the country, but I am forced in Leitrim to grow the same amount of acres on Drumlin soil. And uh, we have a document of the, the land inspector in one of those years arriving at the farm. And I don't know how he measured it because it's very inaccurate that say there was uh, 38 uh, statute acres to be grown in wheat and the inspector calculated that there were only 37 and a quarter acres. So. And they got a nasty letter on and the basis of three quarters of an acre. Qu- three quarters of an acre, which is a front garden of a, a modern house that that had uh, not been tilled in wheat, as was the obligation, and that the minister would take a very dim view of it and take whatever action was necessary And that quarter of an acre would be added to the quota for the following year. And keep in mind that this was pre-tractor. This was horsepower, labour, the population declining. It it didn't make a whole lot of economic or scientific sense, but that's the way people had to do it. And in a way, if I were, say, my father's time, because he was the person who had to do this, I would be at the stage of saying, is this worth it, you know, if you put the land annuities, the rates, compulsory tillage, all the other impositions, and then you're still paying. He didn't actually become the outright owner until 1972, which was a very long time. That fascinated me because Mm. 1909 to 1972, 63 years. That's when they they become the registered owners, the Gagan family. Yes, and it sounds like, you know, sometimes the Land Commission is represented as causing a a revolution, but it was such a slow evolution. You you know, it's it's almost two or three, maybe three generations in, in reality. That transfer of land was terribly slow. And, if, you know, when you look at other areas of the country, uh, you can see that people gave up, you know, when they were allocated compulsory purchase plots that were uneconomic and too small for all sorts of reasons. 
Now, the documents that you have here, presumably this, a lot of of, Mm. of these documents are a consequence of correspondence with the the Land Commission. So there should be copies of those or originals in the Land Commission archive. Yeah, there should. And in a way, there are lots of gaps in our research. One of the things that we don't know is if there was any... um, pressure on the part of my grandfather and granduncle to look for compulsory purchase rather than buying it out on a land commission loan because I looked at other tenancies in the Carrigallan barony and I found that other tenants did go to court to try and have compulsory purchase under the, the old land commission rather than buying it out under a loan or the annuities. Mm. So, but the, they were resisted in the courts. But that was after the time of the landlords. It would have been their executors who decided not to cooperate with the compulsory purchase. Have you attempted to get access to documents in the Land Commission? Archive? I haven't because... Uh, why? Well, we had, you know, convinced ourselves that we had the narrative. It's only when you go into the fine grained detail, you say, mm, there's a gap there. We're missing the receipts for the annuities for these years. Or we don't know if there were any challenges or court cases. It looks like it was a reasonably peaceful process, mm. though very onerous. But one thing we had, which I can't lay my hands on, in the uh, 1940s, when my father must have been fairly desperate about all these extra payments and compulsory tillage and so on, that he did apply for a swap, that he would give up the land commission farm that he still had a mortgage on and move to land that had just been acquired under compulsory purchase by the land commission around Dunsany, which probably might have been half or a third of the size, but would have been more economic and more productive. And he had arranged that he would swap his 400 acres form. I, I haven't got the full letter uh, and it's something I have to pursue is how many acres they were offering in terms of a swap because lots of people did swap around the country as the Land Commission uh, got older and this would have been around 1945, 46, 47. So, so this would have been after the creation of Gaeltacht Colony, oh, colony long number after one. that, yes. So in the, this long was in the forties. In the forties, although in the, same, in the same general area. Yes, but it would have been a different landowner. It would have been around uh, Dunsany rather than Balagabe or Rakairn or in around Kells or Navan. Uh, it was further up, so it would have been a different estate and might have been acquired by compulsory purchase much later on in the system. But had he swapped, mm. he could have faced local opposition. He could have, but I could have been a royal. Anne Murphy on her tragic failure to become an inhabitant of the county of Meath rather than a member of the royal family. After the break, why you can find out who Grandad killed in the War of Independence, but not whether he paid his land annuities on time to the British government. Welcome back to our programme on the history of the Irish Land Commission, which was repurposed 100 years ago this year. One of the difficulties about discussing the work of the Land Commission is the fact that its huge archive, comprising more than 8 million documents, is almost all locked away in a facility in Port Leisure, frustrating the unavailable to researchers other than a small number who are given access on a case-by-case basis only. Contrast this with the availability online of most of the military service pensions collection, which has informed so much of the work done on the history of the revolutionary period during the current decade of commemoration. 
So what exactly might we find in the Land Commission archives that could be more shocking than the narratives contained in the digitised and freely available pensions collection or the Bureau of Military History witness statements? Fiona Fitzsimons is an academic, a professional genealogist and CEO of Eneclan, a leading provider of Irish history, genealogical and heritage services. The Land Commission records are organised into two collections, administration records and the records branch. The administration records are in Sandyford at present. They have been cleaned, conserved and organised by professional archivists fairly recently as well. The finding aids to these are excellent. I've worked with them and using the finding aids I was able to go directly to the shelf, pull down the box and take out the exact file that I wanted. The records branch, less so. The records branch are more than 50,000 boxes of unsorted material. What kind of material would you be likely to find in these records? What would you, for example, what would you go looking for? The kind of material I would go looking for would be the rentals. Rentals showing small holdings on an estate. Maps. I love estate maps. They will often be broken down field by field so you can see where everyone's holding is. Holdings aren't always in one place. They can be broken across a townland, even across a barony. It's interesting to see where and when somebody held land. By looking at a rental map, you can often interpret an awful lot of evidence. You can interpret the kind of agriculture they did. Um, If you see that somebody was, if somebody had the right of turbary, you've got a very good... Right of turbary is the right to cut turf, basically. Exactly. And that means that you can actually say, well, I know how somebody actually heated their house. I know how they cooked. You know what the actual smell of of their house was. Um, That lovely pungent smell of a turf fire. So when you go to these records, you're not necessarily interested in the landlord. You're interested in the people who are paying rent to the landlord. Do you know, I'm really not interested in the landlord for the simple reason that landed families are very well documented. You can just pull down a copy of Burke's. You can go into the Registry of Deeds. You can find a huge amount of evidence on the landed families. For me, the real interest is in the tenant farmers and sometimes the under-tenants, the sub-tenants who are living on an estate, tracking those people. That really is uh, what my concern is. And how far back do these records go? I mean, the Land Commission itself starts in 1881 as a consequence mm-hmm. of the 1881 Land Act, but I gather that there are records in Port Leisha that would go back much further than that. There are records in the Land Commission that will go back much further. I know that estate records... Ireland is really bundled into estates at the time of the Tudor conquest and the early 17th century. You will find estate records which go back to the late 1500s, 1600s. The majority probably would be late 17th, early 18th century onwards. At present in genealogy, we can trace virtually everybody back to the 1820s. It's the time that the greater number of parish, Catholic parish registers survive. With access to land records, you can often break that 1800 barrier, and it's a huge barrier in family history research. You can trace families back 100 years or earlier. I, I gather from what you're saying at the moment that there would be a, quite a degree of uncertainty, even if you did have 100% access to the records branch in Port Leisha. The way things are at the moment, mm-hmm. you could go in there, you could spend days looking for a needle in a haystack. 
Yeah, if you're working with the records branch for the simple reason because the records haven't been organised by an archivist, they haven't been conserved in the first instance and they haven't been put in any kind of order by archivists. There are no finding aids. So you might search by estate, but then you literally are going to have to roll your sleeves up and uh, search. You could be there for weeks, you could be there for months trying to find anything relevant. So it really is a needle in a haystack. Now, why? what's the difference between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Because the Land Commission, when it, was, mm. when it began and up until 1921, 1922, applied to the 32 counties, the, the records in Northern Ireland are available. They are open to the public. What's the difference? The difference is the government policy that was put in place in 1923 uh, the policy that was put in place at that time by D.A. Chart, uh, formerly of the Public Records Office in Dublin, now he was the director of PRONI in Belfast, they wanted to try and create an archive where there had been none. Working with different government departments, they managed to find a happy medium where the Land Commission records for the six counties of Northern Ireland were accessioned by PRONI. If you head up now to Belfast... You can actually call up any of these records for estates. They are conserved. There's a good finding aid for all of them. And you can actually uh, go to Prony, sit down at your desk, and within 20 minutes you'll actually have the records at your table. In her time with the National Archives, historian and archivist Katrina Crow watched warily and at times anxiously as the Land Commission records remained in administrative limbo. In 1992, the building which had been occupied by the Land Commission, which was the former home of the Duke of Wellington, and had, still has a beautiful plaque in what is now the Marion Hotel commemorating him, was sold to um, a hotel owner, who eventually turned it into the Marion Hotel, very posh hotel. At the back of that was a three-storey purpose-built concrete repository built in the 1930s specifically to house the numerous records of the Irish Land Commission. We got a tip off that this was going to be demolished possibly with the records in it if we didn't do something about it and I always remember going on a trip there with the then chair of the National Archives Advisory Council, Judge Niall McCarthy. Just walking around the place you, you could see the absolute riches that were involved Like there was a mixture of 18th century leases, 19th century registers of fair rent, 16th century deeds. There were the original deeds to the properties owned by the landlords that had been transferred back to tenants. Beautiful hand-drawn maps from the 18th and early 19th centuries. Absolutely wonderful stuff. And as you know, Miles, the big question in Ireland for at least 300 years was land. So here it is. Here's the end of that story, as it were, or at least the beginning of the end of it. So the records were transferred in a ferocious hurry uh, to the warehouse at the back of the National Archives by a wonderful young archivist called Una Wark, who's no longer in the archival profession. But if she is listening to this programme, can I thank her for her hard work? Um, It's a horrible job transferring large amounts of records from one place to another. Somebody's got to do it. And she did it with with great care, made very good catalogues to the records, which are still there in the National Archives. We house them on not particularly great shelving in the warehouse, but at least the records were kept in the order in which they arrived. So there was some sense and coherence to the collection. They stayed there for many, many years, despite 
requests from all sorts of people, me, the great Terry Julie, who's always been a huge advocate of releasing these records, and many other historians and other people, to release them to the public. The Department of Agriculture, which is the ultimate owner of them, has steadfastly refused to do so, despite the fact that they are, in fact, breaking the law by um, not adhering to the National Archives stipulation that state records that are more than 30 years old should be released to the public. It seems very hard to shift the dial on this. Now, they are currently in a warehouse in Port Leash, and it's not clear what is going to happen in terms of access into the future. But if I may be mentioned three sets of records that are particularly important. The title deeds, which are the title deeds to the land, sometimes extensive estates, transferred from landlord to tenant. That process of transfer turned Ireland into a small-holding Catholic conservative peasantry. We know all the results of that. We've had a lot of exploration of that uh, idea. But some of these go back to the 16th century. They replace, in other words, a good deal of what was lost in the uh, fire in the four courts in 1922. The fair rent registers, which cover the whole country, which are these lovely ledgers giving you information about the tenants on various estates prior to their sale, which are basically a census substitute for 1881 and 1891. Loads of wonderful information in those for a time when we don't have that much consistent countrywide information. And then the Church Temporalities Commission leases. These are leases from the Church of Ireland to various tenants, largely for the 18th century, a huge voluminous collection of beautiful 18th century leases. Those are in the possession of the National Archives because for some reason they were seen as not part of the Land Commission collection. They could be catalogued now and released to the public. There's already an index to the title deeds that's in the National Library that was done by Ned Keane many, many years ago when he got access to them. So what is the delay, lads? Is there any chance we could see these wonderful records? Now that we have proven that releasing records to do with ambushes and atrocities and the dreadful things that happened during the War of Independence and the Civil War have not caused the sky to fall on our heads. Could we please have that last important piece of the jigsaw and have the Land Commission records released? Theoretically, they're accessible on a case-by-case basis, but it's very arbitrary. I applied three times to use records. The first two times I was given the go-ahead I was able to rock up, I was able to pull down the exact file box, pull out the exact document that I was looking for. The third time I applied, permission was denied. No reason was given. The first two times you applied, though, you were consulting the records or you were trying to trace the genealogy of one Barack Obama. Do you think that's why you got in? Potentially that's a reason why I got in, but it is so arbitrary. I have no clear sense. There's no feedback. So I can't say, yeah, that's definitely the reason why. So you've no idea why on the third occasion you were turned down? I can surmise, but as historians, we're not here to surmise. We're here to try and pin it down. But nobody told you the reason why we're not letting you in is because this is confidential. No one gave me a reason why I couldn't access the records. Quite recently, this year, you have been working on the the family history and the family tree of one Joseph Biden. Did you have cause to seek access to the, to the records when you were doing that research? Well, in fact, when I was researching then Vice President Biden, that was the third time that I applied and access was denied. 
The argument that they're still operative is, in my view, flimsy. Uh, there may be some of them, particularly to do with the migrations in the 1930s, uh, the, the famous ones from the west of Ireland to places like County Meath, where you live yourself. Maybe some of those would still be seen as, as working archives. But the title of the land was transferred from landlord to tenant. The tenant owns the land outright. What meddling can the Land Commission have to do with any of that? And if they were still working documents for either the the previous owners or the current owners of the land, what are they used for? Lawyers presumably go and look at the records because they want to establish title going way back for, for sales of land. That wouldn't be any different if they were in the public domain. It's not a dark secret. You know, I mean, there are, there are land records available to people. The records of the land registry have been uh, are made available to people who want to see them. The records of the registry of deeds, which go back to the 18th century, have been open for a very long time. So what is the mystery about these, that they're, they're supposed to be very special in some way? And if they are being used for legitimate purposes, could the Department of Agriculture tell us what those purposes are and what proportion of the records are being used in that way. Do you suspect that this is simply penny-pinching, that they're not prepared to make the money available to release these archives to the public? If it is penny-pinching that they're, they're keeping them back, they can have access to the catalogues made by Una Wark, which are they're, they're raw, basic catalogues, but they still give you a sense of how to find your way around. The title deeds already have an index to them. That index could be digitised. It doesn't have to be. It could be consulted in situ. Before the great miracle of the internet, many of us are old enough to remember going into repositories, sitting at a desk and waiting for a box to be brought to us, having consulted paper, catalogues and indexes. That could still happen with this material. Now, there'd be a huge queue of people waiting to do it, and obviously digitisation would be lovely and potentially expensive, but probably not as expensive as people think. Digitisation has got much cheaper, even since I did the the 1911 census. So it it would be worth... What's lacking is the will to even investigate this, to actually see what it might, it might cost to do it, to investigate are some of the records being used for legitimate working current purposes and to see how these things might be made available to the public, at least some of them if not all of them. That to me does not seem like a huge ask. It's never been done. It's just we would really benefit from having them right now or as soon as possible, considering all we've discovered about the recent uh, decade of centenaries. This would add immeasurably to our understanding of that decade and, of course, of life in Ireland into the 20th century. What it really needs is for the National Archives to take a very proactive stance on this with the backing of its own department, which is the Department of Culture and Arts and all the other things it's a department for, to tell the Department of Agriculture that they are breaking the statute, the National Archives Act of 1986, and that they have to stop doing it and start dealing with this issue now. That has never happened. There has never been a really forceful approach to the department to to, uh, not just ask them, but tell them that they've got to do this or they're in breach of the law. I'd love to see that happening. The other possibility, of course, is that access might be granted to the virtual repository of Ireland, Peter Crook's great adventure where he's trying to restore what was lost in 1922 
he did get access, I think, to indexes that may or may not be digitized because the person in charge of them, I think, has moved on. But even if, if, if some chink in the armor can be established by that project, and Peter seems to have fantastic persuasive um, powers, that would start the ball rolling and at least get us somewhere. If the indexes were digitized, we would have some idea and the general public would have some idea of the enormity of the size of this collection and how valuable it could be for research. In the Republic of Ireland, the Land Commission records are deemed to be personal records containing sensitive material. But unless you can actually view those records, it's difficult to say what exactly is sensitive. There is a possible argument that the records of the collection branch could be sensitive. Those are the records of collection of annuities and payments, and they make up about 417 boxes. They might be deemed to be sensitive, and there is an argument for possibly putting those out of access to researchers. But the other records, I really cannot conceive what reason they could possibly give. These are rentals, these are leases, they are estate maps marked up, they are records of the temporalities, the Church of Ireland property that was sold under the Land Commission as well. There is some congested districts material, congested districts board. All European privacy law applies only to living people. The people that are documented in these records because the greater amount of Land Commission records date from 1891 to 1926, the greater number of the people in those records are long dead. So there really is no argument to be made on the basis of privacy that we shouldn't have access to these records. Would it be fair to say that potential areas of controversy or issues of privacy really only arise from the work of the Land Commission that begins with the Free State Government in the 1920s and 1930s? I think that's the argument that is made, but even that, I am uncertain of that. I know that there was a huge argument, and it's beautifully shown in the Ken Loach film, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. There is that argument about viable holdings, about whether or not they continue to break up the estates and give the right of tenant purchase to smaller and smaller holdings, whether or not there is an economic future for those small farmers. I would think that argument probably underpins an awful lot of this. Would you accept a chronological restriction of some kind, a 30-year rule, a 50-year rule, perhaps even a 70-year rule? Or is that too arbitrary? I think you might make an argument about restricting access to the collection of annuities, maybe up to 30 years ago. That would take us up to the 1990s. And I think the Land Commission itself has dissolved in 1999. So another 10 years will even be past that point. I don't see any reasonable argument for restricting access to these records. What's the difference between the kind of confidential material that might or might not be in Land Commission files and the kind of confidential material which would be in the military service pension collection files, which are now, which are all available and and the vast bulk of which are online at this stage. I mean, there's stuff that emerges from the military Mm. service pension collection files that I'm sure a lot of families around the country would not have liked to emerge. And now they're all online. I would have thought the material in the military service pensions were was much more sensitive than the material in uh, the land commission records. But I think Irish people are fiercely possessive of the land. In my work, I look at families going overseas. There's an awful lot of Irish that travel, particularly with the um, availability of land from the 1860s and 1870s on. There's a real land hunger. 
Irish people have very strong sense of what's mine is mine, wanting to hold on to what they have. Most of these tenant farmers would actually have farmed the land for generations, six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations. When I research some families, if the estate records start early enough, I can and have found families, the same families, remaining on an estate, going back to the early 1700s or even the late 1600s. Briefly, if you can put a figure on it, on a scale of one to ten, how useful would total access to these records be to somebody like you, to a genealogist? On a scale of one to ten, I'd say probably about a nine, for the simple reason that we've lost the 19th century census. Without the census, we have to fall back on collateral records, records which were never made with the intent of capturing all the Irish population. Griffith's valuation, for example, that kind of thing. Griffith's valuation is a marvellous source for the simple reason that it captures every Irish household. The landed estate records, the Land Commission is probably the most complete collection of landed estate records that we're going to find for all of Ireland. Part of the difficulty as well is that after the breakup of these estates, many of the original records were destroyed. Medieval historian Kenneth Nichols in UCC tells a story about he was working with Ainsworth in the National Library to try and collect in the old estate records into the National Library. This is in the 1950s and the 1960s. He tells a tale about getting lost on the road to the Clan Rickard estate. And he arrived there a few hours later than he intended to, and there was a bonfire in the central yard. These were the medieval records of the Clan Rickard estate. And the Clan Rickard is one of the oldest. It would have been one of the most complete of all the estate collections. I would say the Irish Land Commission represents the single most important archive available to social historians of Ireland, not just from the beginning of its working in 1881, but indeed because of the archives that it acquired from its predecessors, going all the way back in some cases to the 16th and and the 17th century. But from the perspective of social historians and, remember, Scholars from a wide variety of other disciplines, be it geography, sociology, anthropology, political science and so on, these archives have such a wealth of information and detail to offer. I mean, you take the most fundamental records of the Land Commission, which deal with who owned or who owns Irish land and the transfer of that land ownership to, for example, the correspondence, the letters that are being written to the Land Commission when an estate is about to be redistributed from families living in a locality, setting out why they should get land above their neighbours and so on. But setting out how many there are in their family, uh, what age these children are, where they are, have some of them have been forced to emigrate and so on. And as well as all of that, I mean, you still have, you know, all those fundamental questions that have to be asked or answered about political interference in the whole acquisition and redistribution schemes. You have questions that could be asked about how the Irish Revolution played itself out in the long term, how many IRA veterans, for example, received farms of land because of their contribution to the War of Independence and beyond. So the longer Irish Revolution, so to speak, that stretches into the 1920s and the 1930s. The argument for closing them, that they are working records and that they contain sensitive information, 
I mean, the information they contain is no more sensitive than the IRA pension files that have recently been released, that historians have worked through, have done so much great work on. The information in those is very often of a very sensitive nature. Yes, you do get similar sensitive information in the Land Commission records, but I think at this stage, and given the amount of enthusiasm that I get every time I give a talk on this up and down the country from public audiences for the opening of them, I don't see any reason why they can't be opened. Do we know exactly what we have even in the Port Leisha archive? Even I was amazed when I went through some of the boxes there to see the type of information that was available. I mean, again, as I said, from the very fundamental records of transfer, the leases, the various documents attached to those, to the magnificent maps, right? And I mean, we can do so much with with, with maps alone in the present day, to the social records in relation to local communities because we're not just getting evidence about the people who farmed the land we're getting evidence about the places and to what extent is the material in the archive available to researchers i mean you've been there have you been allowed have you been able to do academic work there research work there i haven't asked to do academic work there but what i wanted to do was just to get a sense of what was there so i was fortunate to get a tour of the archive itself and to see for myself what is there. There are various estimates of around 8 million working records. That's possibly conservative. Are there genuine handling stroke safety concerns around this material? There would have been in the past, but I don't think that's the case today because they are you know, in a state-of-the-art uh, repository at the moment. But if you look at K.D. Buckley's essay on the Land Commission records that was published in Irish Historical Studies back in the 1950s, you can see that there were certainly issues even at that stage about the state of the records and the fact that they were you know, subject to decay. There's also the possibility that many of these records during paper shortages at various different times would have been recycled. And that is possibly true in relation to the correspondence, the tens of thousands of letters that the Land Commission was receiving every year. Nobody seems to know where these records are. They possibly have been included now on files, uh, redistribution files, but I don't think they're there as a separate category of records in, in their own right. Has the archive, has it been properly catalogued or does money need to be made available for that work to to begin or for that work to continue? I mean, over the last few years, certainly efforts have been made or have been made to catalogue the material. Of course, it would take a massive investment, I would think, of capital and human resources in order to put shape on these records, in order to make them available to a research public. But it would undoubtedly be one of the most important archival projects undertaken in this country. What private sensitive information could possibly exist for records dating back to the 19th century? I mean, could we have some kind of a 30-year rule, 50-year rule, 75-year rule operated to allow us access to 19th and, say, early 20th century material? The most 
sensitive records are probably the inspector's reports. And these are the reports of those inspectors who went into a locality and interviewed potential applicants uh, in relation to land redistribution. So they are taking extensive notes on families and they're drawing, in very many cases, their own conclusions. And in that way, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, some of the information in these is sensitive. But again, I mean, it's no more sensitive than the information that is in the IRA pension files. And yes, you know, I mean, if you were pragmatic about this and said, well, you know, people named uh, who are still alive, but surely we can put some sort of a date on these uh, in order to begin the process of working our way through them. And the information that is there, for example, on big houses, land estates, domains, the final schedule of encumbrances that landlords drew up so that we get an idea of how indebted they were by the time they sold their land in 1903. I mean, that type of information that could be so fundamental to changing the way we look at the history of the big house in Ireland. I mean, there's no reason whatsoever why that sort of information cannot be opened. Can you see a day, some point in the future, when all of this material is online in the same way as the Bureau of Military History witness statements are online and as the military service pension collection is online? At my age now, I doubt I will ever see it, right? But I would certainly be hopeful. I mean, I do believe that, you know, people are making moves in the right direction for this to happen. But again, I emphasize, I mean, the sheer volume of material that is there it will take a long time to make it available. Digitization is obviously the way to go. Regardless of how long it takes, I think it's important that we begin the process sooner rather than later. We need a 30-year-old Katrina Crow. <laughs> and, and maybe 10 of them. <laughs> a hopeful rather than optimistic Professor Terence Dooley on the prospect of accessing and digitising the last great Irish archival treasure trove, the records of the Land Commission. Also taking part in tonight's programme were Anne Murphy, Fiona Fitzsimons and Katrina Crow. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio 1. From me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.